Broadcasting live from the middle of America, welcome to the Oklahoma City Real Estate Show. Covering local market data, news, and reports to arm you with information you need to empower your investing and strengthen your American rights. Top Realtor, investor, husband, father, and veteran. Here is your host, Landon Witt. For more information and to listen or watch online, visit OKCRealEstateShow.com. Welcome to episode 60 of the Oklahoma City Real Estate Show. On today's show, we have Gina Pogel in the studio talking about mortgage rates coming in via Skype from Oregon, all on the West Coast. Gina Pogel's been featured on Fox Business as well as MSN Money, Forbes.com, talking about mortgage rates, how they affect your rates locally and how you can predict them in the future. I'm here on Britain Road right now, which is the scene of a road that's been shut down, well, really just to one lane for many, 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 many months now, which is a sign of things to come here in Oklahoma City as Maps 4 and as the Better Streets program is pushing for better streets here for Oklahoma City residents. I want to get into your market rates or your market report this week. Nothing too crazy to report. We're still coming in at that median of just 13 days on market for Oklahoma City. Now, we do that 10-city core and out, coming in at uh, 145 median purchase price with your selling or list price at 145 with your selling price coming in at just 144000 That coming all the way down from we were touching up into the 200s on our average sales price earlier this summer, but still remaining at that 13 days average on market and looking at a 0.69% discount over listing versus selling. As far as your REOs on the market, we only had one this last seven days. That coming in at 51000 spending just 16 days on the market. Folks, with the wholesalers out there and being just aggressive as ever, we've got very, very, very low REO inventory. The things to highlight this week on the show, and we're going to get further into this as we go into the September market report. That would be the market summary of September. But I wanted to bring up construction because the 12-month change for the month of September is something we'll look at more in detail, coming in at 10.7% gains in construction here in Oklahoma City. It is by far the largest category of employment gains all year long uh, in any other category, construction taking the lead. As you can just see behind me here, uh, many of these scenes playing out throughout the city. As far as our other highest coming in at 2.6% would be manufacturing. Also, another thing to note, financial jobs dropping 3.9% year over year from last year, looking at a 3.9% reduction. That is the largest drop all year in the financial sector. No other gains, everything's staying pretty stable. I want to get to our guest here on the show for you here. For more news and information, you can check out okcrealestateshow.com. Thanks and enjoy our guest today. All right, so you've asked for this and we've provided this. This is the Nerd Alert Geek Mortgage of the week for sure, of, of probably the year. When we talk about mortgage guru, we are talking about Gina 
Pogel here on the Oklahoma City Real Estate Show. Gina has been, she's an uh, editor for a highly regarded mortgage site called hsh.com. You can also find her on sites like MSN Money, Fox Business, Forbes, Motley Fool, and Kiplinger, where she's written many columns on mortgage and how it affects with news, with the rates, and what does it all mean? So, here on the show is Gina. Gina, welcome to the Oklahoma City Real Estate Show. Thanks for coming in. I know you're coming in from the West Coast now. Is that right? That's correct. It's great to be here. Awesome. And thanks for having me. Awesome. So um, one of the biggest questions we get is, We've seen the mortgage rates dropping or the interest rates dropping on the news. You know, the Fed announces another interest rate drop, and everyone instantly says, let's go out and call our mortgage broker and go ahead and either refinance or let's go ahead and lock in that rate if they're searching for homes, or if they announce maybe an interest rate drop at the end of the month, you know, sometimes we forecast an interest rate dropping at the end of that month, and they'll wait to put in an offer on a home thinking that that interest rate is going to affect their mortgage rate. Could you talk a little bit about what's happening there and uh, in some detail? Yeah, sure. Um, as a mortgage lender, I often got this question as well. And um, the, the thing people need to understand is that the Federal Reserve and the federal funds rate has absolutely nothing to do with mortgage interest rates. The federal fund, it's, it's an overnight rate that they lend to banks, depository institutions to help with their cash flow, whereas a mortgage is a very long-term loan, you know, 15, 30 years, and there is no correlation at all. If you want to see um, a correlation between the federal funds rate and, and borrowing, you'll see it in your credit card rate, you'll see it um, in, say, your CD rates from your bank, you'll see it in the prime rate. If you have a variable loan, you may see some movement, but in a, in a long-term play like a mortgage, there's no correlation at all. Hmm. What's the difference between a short term and a long term? Is there a date on that? I mean, what does an what's a institutional investor see the difference being? Well, very short term, like the federal funds, that's overnight. Um, a mortgage is, is, as I said, 15, 30 years. But uh, in general, we would normally consider short term, say, adjustable rate mortgages. Some of them change monthly quarterly, twice a year, annually, those are short-term plays because the mortgage rate can change, the interest rate can change. Where a fixed program, you've got, you're, you're locked in and, and movements in the federal funds rate aren't gonna change that. What does influence mortgage rates and, and long-term financing are the same things that influence treasuries. And that's, that's economic conditions. That's unemployment going up or down. That is the stock market, prices increasing, decreasing, prices on commodities, um, you know, limited quantities like oil, um, gold prices. You'll see correlations between these kind of movements and, and interest rates. And what your norm, if you want to have one basic rule about this, You'd say anything that indicates that the economy is heating up, that it's expanding, those things also trigger concerns about inflation. And when you get investors worried about inflation, they think, okay, I don't want to lock in for 30 years on something that's going to pay me 4% if I think there's going to be inflation and prices are going up. You don't want a 4% payout in a 5% world. 
And so they'll sit there and say, okay, I'm not interested in investing unless these things pay me 5%. And so these things will drive retire. And it is kind of a fear-driven thing. You'll see mortgage lenders are much quicker to raise rates when they're concerned about inflation than they are to drop them because they, they're they more concerned about getting caught in the wrong side and losing money than they are potentially losing business by being a little slower. So as, as a borrower, you need to know that too, that if things move fast and you're on the wrong side of it, um, it, it could go badly for you. And so if you are floating an interest rate and a sudden increase could cause you to lose your loan or lose that house that you're trying to buy, um, it's probably not worth hanging in there just hoping you can you know, get a, an eighth of a point lower. You're probably better off locking in, I say set it and forget it, and, and then you don't have to watch the news all day and, and lose sleep at night. Hmm. Now, you mentioned something really important here, and that's investors getting a return on those, you're referring to mortgage-backed securities, is that right? That's correct. Okay. So could you give a brief introduction on mortgage-backed securities? A lot of folks think that maybe the mortgage interest rate and mortgage-backed securities are the same thing, and in fact, they're not. However, they are related, according to some of your articles you've spoken on, how uh, they're actually inversely related. Could you talk about that? Oh, sure. It's, it's, it's just math. Um, the way it works is a mortgage lender, many, many mortgage lenders don't hang on to the loans that they make. If you make, say, a $100,000 mortgage and over the course of the loan, you might collect, you know, over 30 years, you might collect $200,000 on that $100,000 loan. Um, they could do that or they could turn around and sell it on the secondary market, say, for 150,000. So they're selling the rights to collect that $200,000 over time to somebody right now for 150. But investors don't just buy a mortgage, an individual mortgage from a lender. What they do is they buy it on the secondary market, just like you would buy stock shares. And so the lenders put these loans into pools and they're all similar. Say it's a whole pool of loans that all pay 4% and have a similar risk profile. And then investors will buy shares in those pools. And so what drives mortgage rates is really the demand for these pools. If investors stop wanting 4% loans, then they stop buying them, the price of these things drops, and then your effective interest rate increases. So if, for example, you have a 4% rate on, and this works for treasuries too, if you have an investment paying 4% and everybody's happy with that 4%, that's fair, then the price is, is said to be par. So you're selling a $100 bond or a $100 security for $100, it's at 4%. The person buying it is buying the right to collect $4 a year on, on that. And I'm making this very simple. And that's at $100. But supposing now people go, yeah, I don't think 4% is a very good deal. So I'm not gonna pay $100 for that. Say we're gonna pay $75 for that. They're still getting the same $4 a year interest. But instead of paying $100 for that right, they've only paid $75. So now the actual interest rate is going to be higher. You know, if you pay $50 to collect $4 a year, suddenly your interest rate isn't 4% anymore, it's eight, because you're paying half as much to collect the same $4. And then the same thing, if you have instability, say overseas, and people are concerned, they'll buy into American MBS, they'll buy American treasuries, that forces the price up. 
So if you have a 4% world and suddenly people are going to pay $200 for that $100 security, now they pay $200 for the right to collect $4 a year. So the interest rate drops in half. It's, it's just plain math and it is an inverse relationship. The, the bigger the demand for these securities, the higher their price goes, and then the lower the effective interest rate or the yield is. So what I understand from this is the investors across the world are then transferring their money into a reliable uh, investment, a very a very steady investment, as you'd call the mortgage-backed securities, is relatively stable, I would assume, compared to some of the other volatile uh, investments that in- international investors can do. So they're moving that money in uncertain times, and then mm-hmm. that increases the demand, which lowers the supply, and then that's where prices then change. Now, and then when there's better opportunity or there's better uh, stability elsewhere, then they're moving their funds out of mortgage-backed securities, selling them on the market to other investors. Uh, can you speak to who are these individuals usually, or institutions? I mean, who's buying mortgage-backed securities? Well, yeah, they, they can be purchased by insurance companies, um, funds, big investors, um, just across the board, same, really the same as, as stocks can. Individuals can buy them, you know, in, in funds. Um, and then there's also a subset of that. There, there are mortgage-backed securities, and then there are also um, portfolio programs or non, non-conforming mortgages where just groups of investors, even, you know, private people, will also set up and say, okay, we're willing to buy this pool. And and so that's 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 not that's outside of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, but it's a similar a similar action. So you you have just what it comes down to is supply and demand, and you've got investors as <clears throat> excuse me, you know we're looking at a global thing, and that's why even when the U.S. economy is going strongly, and you would normally think, okay, we've got concerns about inflation here, rates are going to go up, that can be offset by problems overseas. For example, a few years ago, they had a deflationary environment back there where people putting money into institutions were actually getting less out um, because their central banks were trying to stimulate their economies by sending rates below zero. So to them, even 1% or 2% that they could get in the U.S. was a big improvement over negative interest rates there. So money came pouring into our treasuries, our MBS, and that really stomped our rates down and that fuel that was part of fueling a real estate boom because when money was easy more people could buy homes more demand for homes sent prices up there was a lot of action going on in there and, it, and we are in a global environment so it's not just what's going on in the u.s that affects what we pay for mortgages here it's what's going on in the entire world if you've just tuned in we're talking with gina pogel who's a mortgage writer for HSH.com, MSN Money, Fox Business, Forbes, Motley Fool, and Kiplinger. She's also a mortgage originator with over 20 years in mortgage experience, talking to us today with a wealth of knowledge. So for those that don't understand the mortgage process here, a lot of people think it's literally wizardry. They go in there and they get sometimes a letter from a, a different lender, 
a year or two down the road that says, here's your new, uh, you know, payment servicer. It's, you know, you're going to be sending your checks to a different account. And they just, they, they feel like this, you know, 30-year notes just go into this abyss. Could you briefly describe the process a usual 30-year fixed rate loan takes from the moment of origination and closing day until the 30 years is complete? Well, very few people actually keep them for the entire 30 years. Um, and, and that's called repayment risk or refinance risk. That's also built into the pricing. So it's very dynamic. But what happens with a normal 30-year mortgage depends really on the lender. You'll get some disclosures when you sign your final documents that will tell you whether that lender routinely retains its, its loans. And if that's the case, it's called a portfolio lender and it keeps the loans on the book and you'll be making your payments to that lender the entire time. And you know, some people prefer that. And most commonly though, you'll get a disclosure that says this loan may be sold and they'll even tell you what percentage of the loans that lender routinely sells off. Often it's 100%. You'll get some lenders that just originate, they don't keep the loans on their books at all. And so when that happens, your loan may be turned over right away to, you know, bought all right away, and then you may get a letter from a loan servicer. What mortgage servicing companies do is they collect your payments, they administer your impound or your escrow accounts if you have them. That's an account that pays your property taxes on your behalf, your homeowner's insurance, and you may be required to have these things if you put less than 20% down or if you have a government-backed mortgage. So a loan servicer will collect every month um, additional money on top of your principal and interest payment, keeps it into an, in an account called an escrow or an impound account, and then when your property taxes and your insurance are due, it should be paying them on your behalf. Now, I recommend that people follow up and you know periodically check to make sure that that is happening because you know it's not a perfect world and sometimes these things fall through the cracks now loans are routinely bought and sold more than once what happens is um, a lender or a servicing group or a bunch of investors will continually rebalance they don't want to be say exposed entirely in one geographic area or one you know one uh, demographic for loans where it's everybody in this price range and this because it exposes you to risk you know if you're all in florida and a hurricane mm -hmm. comes you know things like that you know so they like to balance things out they don't want to be you know entirely in say the rust belt when things happen everybody goes into recession and walks away from their loans so they're constantly adjusting the loans they have they're buying and selling to that effect and so your loan could be bought and sold many times. Now, when that happens, you should get two letters. They call it a, a hello letter and a goodbye letter. And so the new servicer should send you a, a letter explaining what's happening and where you'd be sending your payments here on out. Your old servicer should also send you a letter explaining what's happening and what's going to happen and where you're going to send your new payments and what your new account numbers are going to be. You should know all these things. Now, if you don't get that, you should contact your current servicer if you didn't get a goodbye letter because there are scams. And what happened, for example, when Washington Mutual went out of business or was bought, or you know, when, when lenders go out of business or they're acquired by other ones, you know, mm. scammers can be out there sending these letters and say, oh, here, this is where your new payment's gonna go. 
and you know you may have just funded some scumbags trip to the bahamas <laughs> you know all your money is going to be overseas and you're not going to have your mortgage paid so you want to be very careful about that when your servicing is transferred you want to make sure you got the hello letter and the goodbye letter you'll have a grace period so if your payment went off to the old servicer and not the new servicer it shouldn't harm your credit but you just want to be very careful and make sure that you're sending your payment to the right place and that it's a legitimate transaction and 99.9 percent of the time it is now if if our servicer changes that does that always mean that the investor has now changed or could that mean that the just the no. servicing company's changed or does that usually mean it's a new investor that's per, that's purchased that loan well it can mean a number of things and in, in, in the first place a lot of times a whole one servicing company may work for lots of lenders, lots of groups of investors. So your investor could change and your service company may not. Hmm. And conversely, um, an investor or a lender may decide to change servicers. And in that case, your servicer would change even though your investor hasn't. So hmm. the main thing that you as a, as a borrower need to understand is that, okay, I was sending my payment here. Now I send it there. I want to verify that this is a legitimate change and you also want to understand that just because your servicing changes or your, your investor changes, the terms of your loan don't change. You know, they purchased that loan subject to everything that was agreed upon between you and the, origin, the originator. And none of that changes. Right, they're buying your, that your contract. Terms don't change. But, right, it's a contract. So, so it, shouldn't, it shouldn't affect you or harm you unless somebody messes up the administration, doesn't pay your taxes on time. Mm-hmm. Or, or your insurance. And so to that effect, I always say, you know, double check. That's another thing to follow up and, and verify. And, so, and just make sure that these things are, are being taken care of so that you don't end up in hot water with your county or your insurer. So for for those particular changes, you're talking about just investors that would buy bundles of these loans. So the loan originator's job is kind of the salesman to get the, the contract signed, get the money delivered, to get the house under contract. And then at that point, it's then thrown to a mortgage servicer who just makes sure that the payments are taken care of. And then is it taken at that point to the to the secondary, the mortgage-backed security market? Is that is that where it goes? Or am I jumping ahead? Um, well, the way there there are so many it, it's complicated. There's so many different ways to to fund a mortgage. Um, there's what they call table funding. There's what they call, you know there are lines of credit. Um, so it all happens differently. It, it depends on whether you're working with a mortgage broker, which mortgage brokers function as kind of the sales arm. For wholesale lenders, they they function as loan officers would for um, a dedicated direct lender. So, for example, if if you go to XYZ Bank and you walk into their office and there's a loan officer there, that loan officer works only for that bank, and you know they will probably fund their own loan. They mm-hmm. may keep it on the books, they may sell it, mm-hmm. and you know. But but the investors often have have the investment and the servicing is is completely separate. And so these guys can buy and sell their shares all they want. And your loan isn't going to change every time somebody, you know, in the first place, your loan isn't going to one person. It's broken up into little shares in a pool and it's lots of people own it. So mm-hmm. if, if it see. goes on the secondary market. So that doesn't affect you at all. It's only when mm-hmm. the servicing changes that, that it affects you. So mm-hmm. 
you know, what happens on the back end really doesn't affect an individual borrower that much. It's it's entirely about the servicing at that point. You you sure. got your loan, you have your contract. Nothing should really change. Mm-hmm. Um, and 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 at that point, you know, the quality of your experience depends on your servicer. And, right. And you you know you well, yeah. I like to and think so for that reason, some people don't want lenders that will sell their loan off because they're they're uncomfortable with that process. I mean, there are bad services out there. Well, and there's there's a benefit to a portfolio lender versus a lender that sells everything off. And that's especially when you get into the investors. I mean, we're pretty investor heavy on this show. And a lot of the investors actually seek out portfolio lenders because they can do the 5, 10, Fannie Mae 30-year loans. You know, they can get into that, you know, past the original five. And they can put, you know, 10 different uh, rental homes on a 30-year fixed rate uh, loan, you know, with a, with a portfolio portfolio lender, whereas some of these mortgage brokers, you know, they'll tell you after three or four that that's the, mo- the most that they can do. Um, so I think there's a lot of a lot of pull for the portfolio lenders when you're talking about investing in real estate, which I mean, I'm an investor myself and I and I love the 30 year loan products, but I just it just blows my mind that they allow investors uh, to purchase 30 year fixed rate, low interest rate loans. Um, that should be something that's reserved for for just uh, your primary dwelling and maybe a second dwelling, but five and 10, that gets a little crazy sometimes I feel. So but to make a long story short, for those that are that are really interested in, in kind of the back side of this, that maybe are watching the 10-year treasury and are paying attention to that, what would you say are some indicators that folks that are watching that CNN money or MSN money or Fox business and are seeing that 10-year treasury rate and watching that, what are some key indicators that they can then look at and know what the health of the mortgage industry is doing? Well, one of my favorites is um, the fear versus greed index that uh, CNN Money puts out. And that's, that's, that is a compilation of a bunch of metrics. And it, it tells you said the fear versus greed index, fear versus greed. Exactly. And so when it's fearful, rates are going down because when in a fearful environment, inflation is not a concern. Um, people are more concerned with preserving assets. And so the amount that they get on an investment is less of a concern. And so in a fearful environment, you're going to see rates trending lower. And and the fear versus greed also, it shows you, okay, this is what it was yesterday. This is what it was last week. This is what it was in the last year. So you can see the trends, which is kind of cool. Um, it's 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 kind of one of my favorites because it's not something people talk about a whole lot and it is kind of fun. You know, you can get really into it and they explain all of it uh, in, in rather good detail. So that's kind of one of my favorites. What, what I normally look at is, you know, I'll pull, I'll pull up things and see, okay, what, what economic things are happening this week? And it'll be things like treasury auctions and you can follow those too. It'll say, okay, we're going to do an auction of, you know, 30 year notes, and then after that, when they close, they'll tell you what kind of demand those notes receive. Now, if it was healthy, then that's a good indication for interest rates. That means the demand is high. And as we just talked about, that means yields go down. Now, if they go ahead and do it, and in the aftermath, you hear that demand was weak or soft unexpectedly, um, then you can look for rates to, to come up in response to that. And it'll happen fairly quickly. 
Uh, and again, I look for, for the routine reports. The, the employment is a big deal. Not so much the weekly one that comes out Thursdays because that's a weekly, but the monthly one is probably mm-hmm. the most important report that we see. Uh, the, un- the unemployment rates, right? You, are you re- What's that? The, you, you're referring to the unemployment rates, the monthly the, unemployment rates. The rate. monthly employment situation Employ- summary, yes. Okay. And, and that, that, that comes out the first Friday of the month, usually. And so that's that's a huge report. And, mm-hmm. and again, if, you, if you're floating a rate in advance of that report, um, you just want to be cognizant of the fact that it could push rates hard one way or another if the report if the result comes in Mm. not as expected and i think i think something you said earlier in the program which is really important is your local lender is most likely going to raise rates more aggressively than lower rates if they're going to lower rates it's going to be conservatively if they're going to raise rates it's more likely to be aggressive and if you're going to say whether it's going to go aggressive in one way or the other it's going to go more aggressive higher because that's protecting their basis now you you may you know one of the topics that you've talked about in several of your articles and i challenge everyone on this show to to just even google gina pogel's uh name and you'll see many many of her articles but you can check out a lot at hsh.com and you'll just read through some of this stuff where she really breaks it down in an amazing way uh but you bring on the topic of in a Every single one of us that's bought a home uh, hopefully has shopped around, uh, although I think, what, 70% uh, go with their first initial lender that they talk to. But uh, you, It's gotten better. It, right. it's, it's more like 50% now. It's, <laughs> They're it, learning. It's surprising to me, though, how different each rate can be. you got the same credit score, same income, same job. Same house, even, especially when you get to that phase where you actually are under contract. You may be shopping around in that last little bit of phase. You got that 10 day in, in the state of Oklahoma to lock in, uh, you know, to tell your seller, hey, this is the bank and this is the loan I'm going for. Um, you know, if you've got a half a percent swing, why is that? What's going on there? Well, there are a lot of factors, um, you know, individual lender policies. Um, you know what what profit level they target what they want how efficient they are because the ones with the lower costs can afford to charge less um, their pipelines if you have a lender that's occupied you know that's working at full capacity the way they can slow things down is to raise their rates and slow the flow a little bit where you if you have a lender with excess capacity then the way they can fill their pipeline quickly is to go below market a little bit so it pays to pay attention because you may be able to catch one of those blips where somebody goes below market, and if you're there in a position to jump on it, you can save some, you know, save some real money. Um, there was a, there's a company called Mayak that's a mortgage industry analytics corporation, and they did a study some years ago, and concluded that rates on any given day between lenders will vary between a quarter percent, and those are for Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, to half a percent, and those are non-conforming jumbo portfolio products. And that's for somebody with the exact same profile, exact same property. And so, yeah, your your rate can go a quarter to a half percent, and that could mean 
thousands, tens of thousands, even, you know, six figure difference, depending on, you know, your loan amounts mm -hmm. over that 30 year term. So it's really important to do some shopping and, 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 and check. And there have been a couple of studies that back this up. Um, Stanford University did one in 2012 and they concluded that people who shop with just one or two mortgage lenders versus four paid on average about or a median of $2,600 more to get a $200,000 mortgage mm. than somebody who just all they did was shop with two more lenders. That takes like five seconds if you're online and just right. filling out a form. And so, you know, for just for a few extra seconds, you can save thousands of dollars. Who wouldn't want to do that? I think people just don't realize some people think oh if it's a government back loan the government must set the interest rates they absolutely don't mm -hmm. these things are funded by private lenders and in fact the va website cautions people and tells them you need to do this you need to do your due diligence and you need to take care of yourself and do the shopping we don't do it for you mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. and so it's important to to be informed and and it's easy so i think if people realized how much money they were leaving on the table they'd be a lot less likely to do that when when you talk about these fannie and freddie mac loans you're talking about the actual mortgage, um, you know, I mean, what, what makes the difference between a conventional and a Fannie and a Freddie? I mean, obviously, we, we all know the qualifications, but what, I mean, what's the true difference for the risk level for the actual lender themselves or the bank or whatnot? Is it because the 30-year the conforming loans mean that they are guaranteed to be sold on the secondary market, whereas a non-conforming loan or a conventional product, you know, or a jumbo loan is not guaranteed to be sold? in the second market what's what's the difference well there's a secondary market for non-conforming too that's those groups of investors that i referred to earlier where they'll get together and they'll put together a pool and say we will buy loans that meet these criteria um, what fannie and freddie loans and they're called conforming loans and there's a reason for that it's because they have um they set guidelines and they say, okay, we will buy loans that conform to these guidelines. We've established that these loans that follow these guidelines are statistically, um, they statistically have a default rate of X and we price that and we can live with X. And so we've commoditized these loans. What they've done is they've mm -hmm. taken a loan from you know Mr. Jones in San Diego and made it equal to a loan from Mrs. Smith in Baltimore because they comply with the same guidelines. And so then you can take loans that are disparate loans all over the country, bundle them together, you've made them the same. Hmm. And then that's how you can pull them, break them up into shares and sell them um, reliably. And I so that's, that's, what, that's the difference between a conforming loan and a non-conforming loan. A non-conforming hmm. loan is less liquid, it's harder for a lender to sell, and because it's less liquid, the price is gonna be higher. Hmm. Hmm. Interesting. And now what's the, the, the purpose of the jumbo loan uh, being risky or non-conforming? Is that just because they're saying the average person doesn't spend, you know, the median home price is this amount and a jumbo loan is, is maybe double the median house price? Is there a reason why a jumbo loan is, is considered non-conforming? I mean, what's the, why? Well, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac have, have decided that they, the market in which they function, and, and they were first, they're called government-sponsored enterprises, and their purpose when they came into being back in the 30s 
was to increase the liquidity and, and increase home ownership in in the United States. The same reason that hmm. you know FHA loans were brought, they were brought into advanced home ownership. Not they're not they weren't just brought in as a private enterprise to make money. Although they they Fannie and Freddie certainly evolved in that way, mm-hmm. but their purpose was to increase liquidity in the market and increase home ownership. And so for that reason, you know, when a lender can easily sell a loan off and you know, go ahead and take that money and make more loans that they're they're operating on margins that are predictable. And so for that, they can they can charge less. Now, when you're talking a non-conforming loan, and there are many reasons a loan can be non-conforming, not just loan size, um, the pricing will vary a lot more because the borrowers vary a lot more. A non-conforming loan doesn't have this set of rules from Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. A non-conforming loan can be $4 million. A non-conforming loan can take people with a 500 credit score that those are also called non-prime hmm. and a non-conforming loan can say all right you don't mm-hmm. have to give us your tax returns to prove your income we'll take your bank statements so sure. they can kind of make up more you know their own rules and the reason they can do that is they're not selling it to groups of investors who are assuming that the risk is a when it's actually b they're mm-hmm. selling it either to investors who've already made the rules and they know what the risk is and they've decided what they're going to pay or their portfolio lenders and they're maintaining them on their own books and they're the ones who are going to eat it if they make a mistake in their mm-hmm. underwriting. The reason that jumbo loans, bigger loans can be riskier is their size. If a loan goes sideways, you're losing more money. That's a big part of it. As, as on one, as on one risk, particular asset. Yeah, that, that, uh, yeah. that makes sense. But that the default sense. risk on a sure. jumbo loan isn't higher. Sure. Um, they typically have stricter underwriting guidelines and they perform often better. Hmm. Wow. So now I feel like we can watch the news and see kind of the market going on and then respond and not actually be able to ask questions accordingly to our loan officers. Now, if somebody comes to you and they say, hey, I went on Quicken.com or, or you know, RocketMortgage.com and I got this in particular rate or, or any one of the other various, uh, you know, online, you know, big, as you call, uh, you know, efficient, uh, you know, low margin, you know, mass number uh, mortgages, why didn't everybody just go through something like that? I mean, what, what's, the, what's the benefit of, of doing a, a personalized local broker, per se, or a broker that you, you constantly deal with? with versus just shopping at the Walmarts of loans? Well, I would say that you want you want to go with both. I would always throw a mortgage broker in the mix because they have access to many products. So you're not, if you walk into, you know, Bank of the United States or whatever, and they've got their five plain vanilla loans, and these are the prices, and they're going to put you in it, whether it's the best deal for you or not, or the best, even the best product for you or not, um, that might work if you are a plain vanilla borrower and and that happens to be the lender with lowest rate, which is kind of a crapshoot. Mm. Um, a mortgage broker, especially if, if you have maybe an issue with, you know, an unusual property or you're an investor or you may have a little credit glitch or something, these guys will have access to a lot more lenders, a lot more guidelines, a lot more programs. And so I would always throw a broker in the mix. Hmm. I would also go on a site like HSH and fill out the little form because then I get, you know, a fistful of quotes and talk to, and then I'm more knowledgeable talking to Mr. Local Guy too. Hey, I have this Hmm. offer from these guys. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, 
And can they? Can well, you negotiate? I mean, is it is it something like a car dealership or something where you can go and say, hey, Joe Blow down the street's got the same Volkswagen Jetta, same color model make as yours, and it's, you know, $3,000 less. Can you match the price? I mean, is that something, is that the kind of behavior we can have with our, our mortgage uh, lenders? Not as much as they used to be able to do that um, before mortgage reform. And the reason that some of that was sharply curtailed and a lot of lenders don't like to do that now is that if you give somebody else a better deal by definition you're giving somebody else a worse deal Interesting. and you're not allowed to do that hmm. and so usually the, the main the main thing with doing the shopping is that you're comparing lender to lender to lender now your individual guys will have some leeway you know, they may, they may be able to to waive some fees. They may be able to you know have some some tolerance. They may be able to, for example, they are allowed if you're already locked in, and then you you know rates drop and you see a much better deal elsewhere. And some lenders will give you a better deal to hang on to your loan. So I always tell people that you know they should look before they lock. And, you know, before you pull the trigger on a lock, do a check. Make sure that you're getting the best deal to which you're entitled you know, before you commit. You know, do a last-minute check and get in there because it's, it's a lot harder once you're locked. So you know, when you, you when you're talking about elsewhere and start over or, or get a lender, hopefully, that will, will work with you. Right. And and when you're talking about these, you're talking about conforming loans, obviously not this no doc and all that other stuff, but a conforming loan, the federal government is, is kind of, uh, you know, requiring lenders to be fair with everyone. So because I get this all the time, Landon, I've, I've been working with my bank for 25 years, and I know they're going to give me the best rate because I've had a checking account with them since I was 15 years old. And, and uh, so I'm going to I'm going to work with them. And that's the only person I want to work with i mean is there any validity there if they can't give preferential treatment to one person over another how are you going to get preferential treatment just because you've been with the bank for 20 years well what i would say is is there there is an advantage in dealing with someone when you know you're going to get a high level of service i mean it's not all about rate and price for instance if you go with a rock bottom rate and they don't close on time and you lose your house or they don't close on time and you blow your lock and then they lock you in at a higher rate there's 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 a lot that can happen between opening escrow and and getting your keys and if you had your account there and you know those people and you know that they will work for you and you know that they they have all your financial information right there they have your bank statements Mm -hmm. um, it can make it easier it can make it smoother and and I talk about this quite a bit. That there's there's your lender, and then there's there's your loan officer. And you want to work with someone you trust, and someone who's professional, and someone who knows what they're doing. Who, when they make a recommendation for a program, they've got a reason for it, not because it's the only program that they bothered to learn about. Um, you want somebody who is responsive. You know, you make a phone call, you want them right back to you. I worked for a lender where if we didn't return our phone calls in an hour, we were fired. Mm. on the spot where uh, i've seen yeah. other lenders who if they have bad news they won't call you you can't find them. so there's <laughs> a lot more going on besides just your rate and and people should recognize that you know you want a competitive thing but you don't need blood on the floor 
you know, you want a fair rate, but you also, you want a good experience. And, and that also affects your pocketbook. You don't close on your house. That's going to have impact you a lot more than paying an extra $10 a month in payment. Right, right. And like you talked about before, most people are doing their numbers thinking, you know, they're looking at maybe the AM schedule or whatever, and they're thinking, well, gosh, Landon, uh, uh, an eighth of a percent 25 years from now is a lot of money. And it's like the reality is, is, man, you're not going to be living in the house 25 years from now. I mean, I think the National Association of Realtors has two different figures, you know, for different mm-hmm. age groups, but they've got anywhere the maximum I've seen is 14 years. I mean, that's like the max mm-hmm. for your average yeah, homeowner. Yeah, for for first timers was three to five years and move up home buyers they kept their tenure was seven to ten years on on average so yeah and and people even when they keep their homes they refinance often so it's not like you're going to have that mortgage forever usually so that that's a really that's a real valid point and yeah these these little bits they sure they they add up over time but that isn't the only consideration i mean you mentioned quick and loans Quicken Loans and Rocket Mortgage have been tremendously successful. Mm -hmm. And it's because they do provide this high level of service to people who are kind of insecure about the process and they want to just get it done. But if you are looking for the lowest rock bottom rate, you're not going to get it with them. So, Hmm. you know, they recognize that rates are important, but it's not the only consideration. And you can't argue with their success. Okay, last question, and then I'll let you go. We're almost out of time here. Um, This comes out of uh, an investor of ours that's out of uh, Northern California. Um, He had this question, wrote in, and I'm paraphrasing this, but it once you close on the loan, let's say you close on a primary dwelling, how long does that individual have to live in that home until they're able to rent that home out? We've got an individual that's just recently had a job transfer and he doesn't want to sell his home, uh, but he wants to hold on to it, but he's afraid of breaking the, the uh, contract that he's got with his mortgage company because he signed something saying he wouldn't rent it out. Uh, is this legal? I mean, how does this work? And what's the average expectation that you won't rent it out i call these accidental rentals um it's it's perfectly legal all that's required is that you intend to live in the property as your primary residence and if you intend to um then there's there's really nothing there's nothing illegal about your circumstances changing or changing your mind or anything else and it's actually pretty hard you know lenders lenders do their due diligence up front for example if you're refinancing and you're refinancing it as a primary residence and then the appraiser notes that oh the place was on the market and they've already bought a new house Hmm. you know or Mm yeah things like that or Mm -hmm. oh you've got three other houses in the same city how are you saying this is your primary residence things like that so they they do check on that Mm -hmm. um if you never got a, a utility bill in your name in the house and you default on the mortgage, that might be a problem. First off, it's not going to be a problem as long as you keep up your mortgage payments. If the loan doesn't go sideways, it's never going to come up. If it does go sideways, you may have to show that you intended it as your primary residence and your circumstances change. But as long as your intentions are honorable hmm. and you make your mortgage payments, you don't have anything to worry about. So the FBI, this big form, you know, occasionally when we're at a closing, 
it's it, it's not not been as common the, the last couple of months, but I've seen this form where it's like warning FBI and it's got the you know the huge FBI logo and it says mortgages are investigated by the Federal Bureau of Investigation. Um, That's true. So it, what is but that doesn't mean they're coming to the the actual borrower's house and checking no, through their files. Well, they they will. I mean, the FBI will tell you, you know, when people were there was this big uproar about mortgage fraud and the and Congress people were making a lot of a lot of headway saying they were going to go after those lenders and do things about mortgage fraud and the FBI's website says the vast majority of mortgage fraud is perpetrated by borrowers against lenders, not the other way around. And so the consequences of mortgage fraud, you know, yeah, there's fines, there is jail time, there there is law enforcement there to go after you. But the fact is, if you make your payments and as agreed, and the loan doesn't go sideways, nobody's going to come digging through your stuff. And the fact is, if your intentions are upfront and they're honorable and you act accordingly then nobody has anything to go after you for the the standard really is if everybody involved knows everything about this transaction would it go through and if 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 you have to hide something in order to not close a deal you know you're screwing up come on sure sure yeah, <laughs> yeah. So if you don't have that squirrely feeling in your stomach, you're fine. Excellent. Well, Gina, uh, tell everybody where you now. You can write mortgages in all 50 states, or where do you where do you currently write, or can you write for the national? Well, I currently don't. I have a mortgage originator license mm-hmm. because that allows me to give mortgage advice. Um, it, it protects my company. Certainly, they don't want to just have people advising who aren't licensed and so i do maintain my license Mm -hmm. and um you know in order to do that and i love it because it's kind of like i'm still sitting across the table from my clients but i just have a lot more of them and Mm -hmm. that was always my favorite thing about being a loan originator was especially working with first timers um, and helping people who weren't comfortable with the process and and you know, helping people who were having a hard time and actually get it done, that always made me feel great. And that's that's why I love working with HSH. And you know, it's a terrific company, a terrific site, and mm. I really love what I do. A lot of people know LendingTree.com, and in fact, I think you've got some history with them. Now, H, your current company, HSH.com, similar to LendingTree for those that may not have been on the site before? It's a similar business model. Um, what people do is they can go and complete a form online and that allows them to get quotes and offers from you know mortgage lenders and you know custom quotes rather than just looking down and pulling you know advertised rates up because what people need to realize is that an advertised rate whether it's in the newspaper an email that you get sent or or on a website is just that it's an advertisement it's usually it's a snapshot this rate was available at this time and it was available perhaps to somebody with a little halo on their head you know 20 percent down 800 credit score perfect primary residence stick built home where if you are not walking around with a halo on your head buying the perfect house with a big down payment Mm -hmm. you need a custom quote Mm -hmm. 
because they're going to be working with you and you need to provide certain information to everybody you talk to to get meaningful offers that you can compare and so that would be you know the price range of the home you want how much you're going to put down um, an estimate of your credit score because those are the big three things that determine your rate is your loan to value ratio your credit score and the type of home that you're buying whether it's a primary residence an investor property as, as we discussed a vacation home whether it's a condominium a manufactured home a farm those are the things that will affect your interest rate and so they need to know those things to give you quotes so you can compare meaningfully and the advantage of shopping online with hsh and and you know other sites but you know we like ours of course the best um, is that you well they've got you i mean come on it, that's a great start. I said they've got you. Well, that's a great. That's a great start right it, there. It allows you to get these quotes. Listen, most most sweet. most loan originators. I mean, uh, let's just be honest. They 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 know a lot about their particular product, but they don't know a whole lot about the industry in general. And if you're really trying to have an advisor, right? You, you need somebody that understands the whole picture. That's what I like about you. I mean, it, it you know you've got you've got a, a first off you got 20 years of experience combined, and then you get this whole national perspective and international. perspective perspective uh, behind you to where you can kind of really understand, hey, listen, this is worth pushing, this is worth not. So I like that concept for sure. Well, and we have me at HSH, but we also have my colleague, Keith Gumbinger, who has been there. He started this site in 1979, and he's forgotten more than I know. Honestly, he is a guru, and you can write to him with your mortgage questions on the Ask the Expert section of HSH.com. And so if you want personalized advice from one of the top experts in the industry. I mean, when the Wall Street Journal wants to know about mortgages, they call Keith. Hmm. That's how good he is. Wow. And so, you know, we are a tremendous resource for anybody who wants to know more than, you know, calling up their bank to get that quote. If you really want some information and you have maybe a problem or a question or a doubt about the process or your own file, you know, we can give you answers that are exactly tailored to you. And we love doing it. All right, Gina, stick around after the break. We're at the top of the hour here on the Oklahoma City Real Estate Show. You've been listening to Gina Pogel, staff writer at hsh.com. Also a writer for MSN Money, Fox Business, Forbes, Motley Fool, Kiplinger, and a mortgage originator with over 20 years of experience. Thanks for watching the Oklahoma City Real Estate Show. You can find out more information on OKCRealEstateShow.com. Thanks as always. Be sure to, if you're watching on OKC Real, uh, the Real Estate Show YouTube, you can subscribe, click the notification bell, and obviously you podcast listeners, leave me feedback on the Apple podcast. Your feedback keeps us on the air. Thanks for watching and listening. For more information and to listen or watch online, visit okcrealestateshow.com.